0: Welcome to another episode of Neo Kobe Pizza, the only video gaming podcast that floats in soup. My name is Mark B, and joining me today is longtime GBN and diehard game fan, owner, operator, contributor, blah, 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 etc., so on, depending upon what we're talking about, Mr. Robert Fight Club Hubs. How you doing today, sir?
1: Doing wonderful. How you doing today, Mark? I'm doing
0: splendiferous.
1: <laughs> Some things never change. Pretty
0: much. So... All right, let's start from the beginning here. When I originally brought up the idea of doing the podcast, the first idea that you came up with was the one that we're going with for today's topic, which was kind of discussing Sega RPGs throughout the years and why they've never really caught on. Where did that come from?
1: I think it's because you've been a big fan of the Fantasy Star uh, franchise, and you've mentioned it many times about Fantasy Star Four. And I'm like, you know, there's not many people I've talked to that uh, are such big fans of the Fantasy Star genre or Sega RPGs in general. I mean, this also came to a head, you know, when we were talking about, you know, when we were having our little Final Fantasy debate back on uh, one of our GVN live shows. So I decided, you know what, this, 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 I really want to know what's going on.
0: Okay, that's fair. So, is it fair to say that you were not necessarily as exposed to the Fantasy Star or other Sega RPG franchises growing up? Like, were they part of your formative years, or did you get into them after the fact?
1: Uh, it, I got into them after the fact. In fact, my first Fantasy Star game was 3, but I borrowed it off of a friend for, like, a little bit. But that wasn't until, like, around, like, 96, 97. My first hardcore Fantasy Star experience was the... Uh, Online version of Fantasy Star Online. Okay. On the Dreamcast.
0: Okay, that's fair. So it's it's those games were mostly things that you experienced after the fact. That was kind of a thing that passed you by. I'm guessing you were more of a more of a Square or more of a Enix type person as you were growing up, maybe.
1: Yeah, actually, absolutely, I was. Uh, I was actually really a big fan of the Final Fantasies. Um, four and six at the time were my favorites. Seven was a great game at the time when I played it. Be- when when it worked properly on my PC because I didn't have a PlayStation at the time. So driver issues aside, I really enjoyed that. Uh the Dragon Warrior games I got into on the NES, they were great. I played Ultima. Uh I played pretty much anything that wasn't Sega related cuz yeah.
0: You just didn't really have it available to you until later.
1: It was not yeah, it was not readily available. In fact, I think it also might have been because when I did have a Genesis, my dad weaned away from maybe the more expensive games, and if I recall, Fantasy Star 4 was one of the most expensive games when it came out initially. Yeah, I want to say it was either $60 or $70 when it launched. I heard it was like around 90 bucks, but yeah, you might be more accurate.
0: Well, I bought it a few months after the fact. Like, I had gotten my own part-time job and saved up to get it, so I don't 100% remember, but I remember that it was roughly around that price point. Maybe it had come down in price, I don't know. Possibly. All right, so that being the case then, this is going to be kind of an interesting discussion. What I'm going to try to do here, that being the case, is fill in the backstory of sorts as we go along. Mm -hmm. So that since you didn't necessarily grow up with these games, but you did experience a lot of them, we can kind of fill in the blanks as to what was going on at that point. I can talk about things from, this is what was going on on Sega's side of things, and you can talk about it from this is what was going on on the other side of things, so we can try to establish a timeline.
1: Yeah, that sounds good.
0: So the first thing to discuss here is that Sega has been making JRPGs pretty much as long as they've been making game consoles. When they started with the Sega Master System in the third console generation, they immediately got to work and released their very first JRPG there, and just kept at that all the way up until the eighth console generation today, and they have a really large, robust library of games. Like, that can't be understated here. Just going within the parameters that we're going to be discussing, there are close to 20 to 30 games that we can go over across multiple different platforms. Yep. That's a lot. That's almost some Square Enix numbers at this point. And yet... For some reason, despite the fact that they've been releasing JRPGs in various capacities over multiple different console generations, none of them have really gotten anywhere. Like The biggest success story they had was Valkyria Chronicles in the PlayStation 3 era, because that did a million units, which was like a big deal. That was, through grassroots campaigning the whole bit, a million units. That's like
1: the biggest selling RPG of theirs, isn't it?
0: Probably, yes. And it's really weird. Because they've made so many that have been critically acclaimed, that have been beloved by gamers who have experienced them. So it, it kind of comes down to the question of why, for all of the effort that Sega's put in, have none of their RPG franchises over six console generations
1: caught on with gamers? And that is a very good question. And I think there's maybe a few possible answers to this and it could be a combination of these answers as well depending on the time of uh, or era of uh, of the Sega we're talking about like for the Genesis era of the of uh, Sega it could very well be that they didn't really market their RPGs as well whereas you could say that that they tried their damnedest when uh, they had the dreamcast out they were trying to market what they could that's
0: definitely true I feel like what we can do here in this case is, kind of look back on things Mm -hmm. review the release schedules from again the Sega side of things which I will address and then the other side of things which I can kind of flesh out a little bit and or I'm sorry bring up and then you can flesh out as needed since you grew up with that more so than I did and then from there I think maybe we can kind of derive a few patterns based Mm -hmm. on looking back on all of it
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I do have a, a good perspective. I mean, you have more of a perspective on, like, let's say, the fantasy star and shining games. But those are probably the only RPGs I never really experienced at the time that they, you know, debuted. I've definitely experienced everything like Dreamcast and after.
0: Fair enough. The one caveat I do want to introduce here before we get started is that when we're talking about these games specifically, what we're going to be talking about here is the. JRPGs and the strategy RPGs. While I do love me some Sega action adventure RPG games like, you know, Beyond Oasis or Landstalker or Dark Saviour or whatever. Or well, the next warrior. Yeah, that was that was actually pretty okay, even if it was a bit of a Zelda ripoff. The the thing is is that if we start getting into those, we are literally going to be here all day. I don't have that kind <laughs> of time. And frankly speaking, there there just isn't really a lot to say about a lot of those games. They they either kind of borrowed from other companies to a certain extent or were just, just released. Work. Yeah, they were just released at a period where they weren't necessarily going to get over with people. So it's it's I do love those games, don't get me wrong. I think that they're fantastic. They just fall outside of the scope of what would be effective to discuss here. So when you're listening, keep that in mind. Now, we're gonna have to start from the beginning, which is gonna be the third console cycle. Nintendo had just released the NES uh, a couple of years prior... ...and Sega had decided to jump onto the bandwagon with the Sega Master System. And while JRPGs were kind of a big deal in Japan and to a certain extent in Europe... ...in the U.S. they didn't really pick up particularly well at all. But Sega took the opportunity to try and bring out two games... Although one of them was technically borrowed from another company, so we're not going to be counting it, which was Miracle Warrior Seal of the Dark Lord. I'm also not going to count it because that game is fucking terrible. Holy shit. (laughs) I fucking hate that game. Oh, my God. But Sega took the opportunity to bring out two games in the JRPG category, as well as a couple of action RPGs of varying degrees of quality. The one game in particular that most people will remember and talk about when it comes to Sega's JRPGs of that time period, of course, is the original Fantasy Star. For its time, Fantasy Star was phenomenal. It was easily the best-looking JRPG to come out at that console cycle. The audio was fantastic. The story was surprisingly... I don't want to say robust just because there were a lot of instances where it fell into the same trap that most of your third and fourth console generation RPGs fell into of little plot development over long periods of time but it was pretty involved when I first played it.
1: One of the first RPGs to actually have cutscenes of uh, dialogue. Yeah
0: exactly that's another big point
1: it's The cutscenes weren't exactly
0: animated or particularly involved. It was just, you know, talking head pictures over some text, but they were really neat, and it was not a thing that you saw, particularly if you were cycling back and forth between the NES and the Genesis, I'm sorry, the the NES and the Master System, because while NES games often had decently high-quality stories, games like Dragon Warrior and Final Fantasy did not feature those sorts of things. It was an amazing looking game, it was a game that held up surprisingly well, even outside of its console generation, and it basically made, like, no fucking money. Meanwhile, over on the NES side of things, there were two major games that came out. Dragon Warrior, which inspired a craze that lasted years, and Final Fantasy, which was a game that Squaresoft originally released. ...as a swan song for their company and made so much fucking money that it saved the entire damn company. (laughs) Well, you would have spent more time with those than I did, Robert. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, my first RPG ever, believe it or not, was Dragon Warrior. I actually came home one day and, you know, it was kind of a surprise. My mom picked the game up from a pawn shop. Uh, (laughs) um, However, my second RPG was uh, Ultima Exodus... And needless to say, let's just let's just say that um, I'm glad I played Final Fantasy next because Ultima Exodus was almost the game that turned me away from RPGs. Wow! But uh, yeah, it, I was not a big fan of that. Although I hear the PC version was better. Um, but regardless, um, Dragon Warrior was was amazing in many aspects because I was really drawn into the you know the tactics. The tactics of, like, you know, casting spells, fighting dragons. I mean, this is my my 10-year-old mind going nuts. You're like, oh, my goodness, I'm finally, you know, fighting a dragon that looks like a dragon and not some really horrendous sprite that has these limited frames of animation, even though they were still images. um, You had a whole vast world to explore that felt bigger than, you know, the original Legend of Zelda. Um, Fantasy Star, you know, exactly, or Final Fantasy, sorry, the... Was originally, you know, just this amazing game too that just completely caught me off guard. Because I mean, you look at still images of this, and I'm like, okay, what's so impressive about this? Dragon Warrior at least had backgrounds during their battles, but then you you go into this and you're like, oh hey, check it out! The uh, the, the 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 hero sprites are actually animated to some degree, and it got nifty sound effects. Um, you got a very robust world to explore, lots of secrets to uncover, and all that stuff. And it was just really blowing my mind. Um, it's also easily to say one of the best-looking games on the system to date. At the time, of course. I'm trying to remember when did it come out, 89, 90? Something like that. Yeah. So, um, I mean, after that, I mean, Dragon Warrior 2, II, 3, and 4, I mean, every ga- every one of those games that kept coming out on the system is just, like, vast improvement one over the other. Like, right away, when you start off with with uh, Dragon Warrior 2, it, it starts off with... An in, with an introductory story, the castle's being invaded, the princess is kidnapped, the king was killed, a lone soldier manages to escape all the way to a faraway kingdom to find a hero to save the day. It was it was pretty good, in my opinion, and um, the, the the scope of the stories just kept expanding. Dragon Warrior 4, being the biggest cartridge ever developed for the NES at the time, was just a very massive game. That they they split it up into chapters too, uh, which was. Uh, I guess was a brilliant idea on their part. I never really exactly finished the game, but it was just, you know, in scope and size, it was just very impressive. The graphics were uh, were, co- were constantly improving as well, even though, you know, all the sprites were about the same and whatnot. And it's
0: Dragon Warrior really took off as a franchise to the point where there was all kinds of really ridiculous and weird especially in Japan, reactions to it. Like, maybe in the U.S. it wasn't necessarily as big of a deal. I mean, they had to give it away with Nintendo Power for free at one point to get people to be like, hey, let me take this game and see what I can do with it. But in Japan, there were all kinds of crazy reactions to it. While some of them are basically just kind of like little white lies or over exaggerations that have gone through the industry over the years the very real reality is the series as a whole did take off in a way that a lot of people didn't expect
1: yeah one of those weird things that i heard about and i don't know if there's still any validity to it but i heard that dragon warrior literally caused the uh the entire government uh, Japanese government to issue a law saying that game releases, especially Dragon Warrior releases, cannot happen during the weekday. They have to be on a weekend because of how massive of a release the game's cause. Or how, how, massive, the, how massive the crowds uh, are when they come to buy the game.
0: I believe that that might be a bit of an over-exaggeration. Possibly, um, yeah. I know that they were releasing them on weekends...
1: Yeah, I think they said, like, Dragon Warrior 7 was released on, like, a Tuesday, and they said productivity of the entire nation, like, went downhill or something like that. I don't know how much <laughs> belief there is in that, but...
0: Yeah, they had they had actually had hearings about it in um, the Japanese Diet, which is uh, equivalent to, like, a parliament or a congress, but they didn't mm-hmm. really pass any laws about it, I don't think. Because of the fact that there were all of those government discussions about it, however, it was ultimately decided... internally to Enix and then later Square Enix to release the games exclusively on Saturdays which I believe continued all the way until Dragon Quest 9 or 10 yeah but there was never a point where they actually passed a law forbidding it or anything like that it was just a thing that happened to come up that way and people kind of took it as oh yeah there's a law prohibiting them from doing it or whatever the heck
1: I guess they were just strongly encouraged to uh, release on the weekend.
0: I don't even know. If it, it might have been entirely their own decision. They might have been encouraged to do it so that they didn't have to put a law on the record saying Dragon Warrior games can only be released on the weekend because how fucking weird of a law would that be? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, it's not, there, there was definitely some do this please or whatever going on with that. This was a trend that kind of continued to the fourth console generation. While Dragon Warrior releases slowed down a bit, SNES RPGs continued to kind of have a bit more hype behind them. So Sega made the active effort to dramatically redouble their production in JRPGs across the board. I mean, make no mistake about it, the Sega Master System saw one major release from Japanese RPGs, one major release of a internally developed but uh, licensed out from somebody else RPG and a couple of action RPGs, the Genesis saw an extensive volume of RPGs to the point where Nintendo basically needed to have Square Enix as well as themselves working to get to a point where they were competing in Japan or in the US. Sega had no less than three different entries in the Fantasy Star franchise come out during this console cycle in 2, 3, and 4, as well as the very first Shining game called Shining in the Darkness, which was a dungeon-crawling sort of JRPG, and two different entries in the Shining 4 series, which were overhead turn-based strategy RPGs.
1: I would technically say 4, because there was at least two released on the Game Gear on top of... Oh,
0: I was not close to done. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. They also released a couple of weird side story fantasy Star games for the Game Gear. Mm-hmm. Like um, adventure games of sorts. They don't really fall into this particular conversation, but it's worth mentioning that they existed. Uh, they did also release two different games on the Game Gear, which were ultimately combined into one big JRPG called Shining Force CD on the Sega CD.
1: I got that game, it's wonderful.
0: It is, it really is. And on top of that, you also have what the various and sundry action RPGs, which again, fall outside of the scope of this, but very much existed and very much were a part of Sega's library in various capacities. This was also the point where Working Designs was actively releasing games in the US on Sega's consoles, kind of sort of working as the closest thing that Sega would have had to a trusted developer with games like Lunar and Lunar Eternal Blue. And then, of course, the, the there's the game that generally a lot of people don't really remember, but it's nonetheless very important, in Dark Wizard, which was a surprisingly solid piece of work that unfortunately never really saw any kind of a follow-up or a sequel or anything, but it was honestly a really damn good game.
1: Yeah, I actually, I, I actually outside of Potful Mail, which is considered the working design's... Uh, Holy Trinity, I guess, even though it's like four games, um, those uh, w- Dark Wizard is probably a, a really underrated game that I'm surprised just didn't get as much fanfare. In fact, if I look back at some of the reviews that I saw, not a whole lot of people were really big fans of it, but I, I think now as time has passed, it's definitely gotten a lot more praise for the type of uh, chances they took with that game.
0: Yeah, and they, we, we don't really see it re-released in any capacity either, which is very strange and a little disappointing. But it was it was for its time and even now, like it's still a pretty good piece of work. It's not it's not the easiest game to get into, which I completely understand, but it's it's a very ambitious piece of work and it was honestly really damn good.
1: Oh yeah. I actually have to say one of my favorite elements of the fact is that uh, that like other later RPGs that were developed by Sega like Dark like Dragon Force uh, took ideas from Dark Wizard like being able to like you know create troops and stuff like that to and dispersing them to like towns and whatnot to be get their health replenished and all that.
0: Yeah, and like I like Dragon Force better than Dark Wizard pound for pound, of course. but it also wasn't successful, so You know, it's kind of a case of, well, both of these games were great, but nobody paid any money for either of them, so fuck it, whatever. But, it's the thing is, is that Sega was on a roll, a really, really big roll with JRPGs during this time period. They released more JRPGs for the Genesis, the Sega CD, the Game Gear, than they released for any other platform at any other point in time. Like, the fourth console generation was a JRPG renaissance for Sega, almost exclusively, and while later generations would see JRPGs hit a renaissance period on other platforms, make no mistake, if you loved JRPGs, the Genesis was where to be.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: And unfortunately, that didn't really translate to great sales for Sega, as while the games made enough money to continue to be just profitable enough that Sega would want to keep making them, the games didn't actually end up being profitable enough that you would look at them and say, oh, these games were a huge, rip-roaring success.
1: Yeah, some of that has to do with the fact that it's the way Sega marketed the Sega Genesis or Mega Drive uh, in general. It was the arcade machine. It was the action machine. It was the machine for, you know, the cool kids to play and all that stuff. It's the game where you want to play your sports games, like Madden that came out and just got popular. It's the game that has blast processing with the Sonic the Hedge- Hedgehog franchise. It's got, you know, Streets of Rage trilogy. You know, all. it it was seen as the cool system. And when you, you, you how do you promote an RPG, a JRPG or a strategy RPG in the midst of that kind of a campaign.
0: To be fair, I can completely see where you're coming from, but you would think to a certain extent with the amount of raw popularity that the Genesis had that there would have been some room for people to jump in and invest that money because it's it's not like Sega was losing for the entire console cycle. We know the numbers now and Sega did indeed lose the fourth console generation, but it was very close. And for a number of years, Sega was straight up winning. You would think at some point during that process that winning the console war would have translated to a better investment in these games, but even though the RPGs that came out on Nintendo's consoles didn't sell particularly well, they sold better than fucking Sega's RPGs. Yes. And it's just very strange, even with that kind of reputation, that sega did market these games sega did push these games and people just didn't invest in them to the same extent
1: i also think it has to do with the fact that uh it it depends on who was making the games by the super nintendo and genesis fourth console generation era people already knew who square enix and uh who well square and enix was whereas you come on to the sega genesis you're like wait sega also makes these type of games and it kind of i guess it's kind of hard for some people who you know are buying into the genesis for the action games want to maybe trend uh move into the rpg genre whereas people who got the super nintendo most likely was like okay hey i remember these developers they got some really cool looking games hey looks enix released one of their first rpgs which was seventh saga that game is freaking hardcore then you got square who came out with final fantasy 4 final fantasy well final fantasy 2 in the u.s and uh, final fantasy 3 and uh, you know mystic quest and a couple of other games uh, as well like uh, like mario rpg so, you have these established, trusted companies uh, making games on one platform, and people aren't so sure about Sega making these RPGs, because all they had at that time was Fantasy Star on the Master System.
0: And I can, I can kind of agree with that to a point, especially during the early days of the console cycle, but, I mean, look at it from the alternative perspective. By the time the console cycle was coming to an end, you've got... Sega having made these games for years, years at this point and reviewers have said Fantasy Star 2 is great, Shining Force is great Shining in the Darkness is great Shining Force 2 is great uh, blah blah blah, whatever you've got that certain amount of well, okay, these are probably games that I can trust whereas I like Enix and I like Squaresoft I don't really think people were beating down the door to buy fucking Act Razor. you know what I'm saying? No. And it's Definitely not 7th Saga. 7th Saga is, even if you like Enix games, kind of widely regarded as a piece of shit.
1: I beg to differ, but, you know, thank God for opinions. (laughs) No,
0: I mean, like, not in terms of its aesthetics or in terms of its mechanics, in terms of the fact that the game was technically broken and requires an extensive amount of fucking grinding to get to a point where you even have a hope in hell of succeeding.
1: Well, okay, then that, yes, I can definitely agree to.
0: Right, like, it's not like a terrible game. I don't hate it. I think it's it's a good game. But in a lot of respects, it's a piece of shit because they've released it broken. And for those who came into gaming around, you know, the seventh console generation where you had internet connectivity and people would patch these games to fix them, we didn't have that shit growing up. If a game came out and it was broken, fuck you. You played it or you hoped that they would do some kind of a voluntary recall, which they rarely, if ever, did. And you just dealt with it. You just dealt with it. If you bought that game and it was broken or fucked up, oh well, sucks to be you. And like when I was a kid growing up, I got a decent amount of games because, you know, I I, I was an only child and, baby, and video games were my babysitter. But For a lot of kids, it was, I get four games a year, maybe. And if this game that I ask for is fucked up, well, I'm beat. Because they're never going to fix it. Yep. But it is worth noting that Sega's big legacy, coming out of the fourth console generation, two games. Phantasy Star 4, Shining Force 2. And which, I personally love Shining CD better, but Shining Force 2 is their legacy title. It is the game that they made that is the standard bearer for the Shining series, by and large. On the other hand, Nintendo ended up walking away with three legacy titles to variable degrees. Final Fantasy VI, Chrono Trigger, Super Mario RPG. And yeah, all of those are square titles in the
1: U.S. But that's also not counting, you know, other franchises that debuted, like the Breath of Fire series brought on by Capcom.
0: Yeah, but Breath of Fire was always kind of a, a, I don't even want to say like a tertiary franchise, because it was never really a focal point for Capcom, and it was never really a franchise that was making Capcom the kind of money that Street Fighter or Mega Man were making.
1: But they still continued to make them, because surprisingly, it ended up being a hit.
0: It ended up being a hit to a point, but it wasn't, like nobody talks about, very few people, put it this way, talk about the Breath of Fire series in the same conversation as Final Fantasy or Dragon Warrior or even fantasy star like it's it's at the time that breath of fire was out pound for pound it was it was still a notable franchise but it was kind of your lowest tier franchise i would think
1: for a low tier though but i would still say that back in the day like in the early 90s mid 90s it was still a franchise that was even talked about in the same breath of uh you know, SNES RPGs, whereas nowadays it's really not really talked about, but, I mean, we're also talking about Capcom back in the day, whereas if a franchise wasn't popular, like Mega Man or Mega Man X was, they practically dropped the games. Like, we never... I mean, Bionic Commando was memorable, but, you know, I don't think it sold that well, and they never made a sequel. In fact, it would have took them over 20 years before they finally made one?
0: Well, a remake first, and then a sequel, which, yeah. technically speaking, you know once again kind of killed the franchise for a few years. But yeah, it's, it's Capcom was definitely not somebody to invest in those kinds of games unless they were making them some money. I, I just feel like, again, it, it was not a franchise that was making the big dollars. And I feel like it, it in a lot of cases, Breath of Fire is one of those franchises that everybody who played JRPGs at that point remembers. But it's not a franchise that lived outside of the PlayStation 2 era. And the game that they released in the PlayStation 2 era was not the best that it could be. Like, it's it's definitely a franchise that's worthy of a certain degree of consideration. But, like, in a lot of respects, those games were overshadowed by the standard bearers. And the standard bearers are the things that are consistently getting re-released and that we're consistently talking about. But it, it's, it's like Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger are the games everybody loves. Even in that same conversation... Nobody, Not as many people say like, hey, Fantasy Star 4 was really great. I loved that game. Even though Sega still had that kind of close to even footing with the SNES for several years.
1: Yeah, the um, Super Nintendo, even though I heard it, it, it pretty much was a 2-to-1 margin near the end of the 4th uh, console cycle. Or is it the 5th? I forget. That
0: one's the 4th console cycle, and I wouldn't say it's a 2-to-1 margin. I believe the numbers are like... Thirty-eight thousand to forty-five thousand, no million, but it's a uh, like thirty-eight million to forty-five million, which is
1: that's kind of different from the numbers I read because the numbers I read, which was like a few years ago, and I actually did look up updated figures, and it perplexed me. Then the figures were like forty-eight million Super Nintendos to like twenty-two million uh, Sega Genesis Mega Drives, and then now that now it seems like an additional twenty million was somehow like added to that sales list since the last time I looked at it.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't feel like, you know, I don't feel like Sega was, you know, trying to sweeten the numbers or whatever. Because at this point, you still can't change the fact that you lost. But going mm-hmm. in and looking at the Wikipedia pages just right now for reference, which I know, I know, uh, Wikipedia. But fuck you. You tell me where I can find any better data across the world. Super Nintendo had forty-nine point one million, so rounded up to fifty. Sega ended up at. Thirty point seven five, not counting the extras, so it's fifty to thirty, which is not quite two to one. Like that would be that would be like sixty to thirty, but it's it's like 1.6, 1.75 something in that neighborhood. So it's not a not an unrespectable showing by any stretch of the imagination. It, it's definitely positive, but for a while there, Sega was still pretty damn competitive. Up until, like I'd say the past, like, like the last two or three years, Sega was pretty competitive and was definitely the standard bearer in the U.S. for a while, for reasons outside. And then they went
1: add-on crazy.
0: Yeah, that's that's a completely different conversation, but no, yeah, Sega, <laughs> Sega completely fucked themselves on that one, which is what it is.
1: And then they totally screwed themselves, thanks to, uh, you know, the guy in charge of Sega during the Saturn years.
0: Yeah, that's, that's an entirely different conversation, unfortunately.
1: Well, I, it's sort of relatable. So, like, when you want to get to the uh, the next generation of consoles, uh, we could de- I could definitely elaborate.
0: Well, let's just go on to that at this point. Actually, uh, fifth console generation is honestly kind of a low period for Sega JRPGs. Sega basically retired the Fantasy Star franchise outside of a collection that they released, and while they did release several entries in the Shining series, including Three different entries in the Shining Force 3 catalog, only one of which made it to the U.S., and Shining the Holy Ark, which went back to Shining in the Darkness' roots of being a first-person dungeon crawler, that was pretty much it from Sega. We got...
1: Panzer Dragoon Saga.
0: Well, I'm talking about, like, JRPGs. But yeah, we well, got...
1: that's still technically, like, a JRPG. It's still turn-based.
0: And you could you could make an argument in both directions. Panzer Dragoon Saga is probably the closest that we're going to get outside of that. Sega also had that weird action Magic Knight Rare title and Dragon Force, which was brought over by Working Designs but developed by Sega, which kind of sort of dark wizard-ish, but didn't really fit into any one category. The closest we could get to was strategy RPG, but it had more in common with something like an Ogre Battle than anything else which is fine it was still a great game it just it it kind of straddles a couple of different genres it qualifies for this for the purposes of what we're discussing here but it was a very odd game outside of that though we didn't really see a lot of sega games that were true JRPGs in the strictest sense of things. Again, there was also Albert Odyssey, which was more action-oriented, and the Ray Earth title, which was action-oriented, both of which came from working designs, until midway through the console cycle, they jumped over to Sony, and took the Lunar titles that had been released for the Saturn and ported them to the PlayStation. Yeah.
1: In fact, if you look at the Japanese library of the Saturn, there was a ton of traditional JRPGs that never made it over to the U.S. Like Sukoden never made it over. Uh, Grandia never made it over. The Lunar games... No, uh,
0: Grandia did make it over. The first one did.
1: Well, it made it over for the PlayStation, but not for the uh, Yeah, say, yeah, that's
0: true, that's true, that's true.
1: I mean, and then there's a few other RPGs, like the Sakura Wars franchise debuted on the Saturn, the first two games, and they were never brought over.
0: Yeah, and I feel like had working designs kept with Sega, had there not been the big falling out between Sega U.S. and working designs, the Sakura Tyson titles probably would have made it to the U.S., and Grandia probably would have made it to the U.S. as well.
1: Yeah, and it's all because of one man, Bernie Stoller and his, he had this thing, for whatever reason, he said RPGs will never be a big system seller in the United States. He was proven wrong on the PlayStation. And then when he was fired from Sony and went to Sega, he carried his really, really bullish ways with him. And it doomed the, the pretty much, I mean, outside of the fact that it was Sega Japan's idea to do the, the surprise launch of the Saturn, um, his unwillingness to experiment by bringing over these popular games that are in japan like the sakura war games or the other shining force games it pretty much helped sink the boat for the sega saturn in the u.s because it sold well for a while in japan the saturn it did not sell well at all in in america
0: yeah and it's it, it also really doesn't help that they got into a big argument with working designs because of star's bullshit because he didn't, he wasn't particularly interested in the idea of working with them to the point where there was just a lot of bad blood. Uh, he didn't want to work with working designs on the Sony side of things, which is probably why they stuck with Sega for as long as they did during the fifth console generation. But there was also a sense of loyalty from Vic Ireland, as I understand it. Oh yeah, and when Stolwer came over and was just like, "Well, fuck you guys," it wasn't. It was very passive aggressive. Like, Working Designs had been a really reliable partner for Sega for a number of years, and he would just kind of treat them poorly. Like when they would do trade shows together, Working Designs would be positioned really far away from Sega's booth, often in places where nobody would really think to visit, like, you know, near entryways or just, like, way out of the way uh, off of the beaten path. And it it was really just kind of a shitty way of handling things, and working designs was ultimately driven to Sony, which hilariously is probably the reason the company is dead today, but also deprived us of the ability to see Probably most of the Sakura Tyson games years beforehand. I mean, can you imagine a world where we got strategy dating simulators on the Sega Saturn before <laughs> the sixth console generation came out? Can you imagine how different it would be? Like how much more readily accepting we would have been of those sorts of things from companies like Nippon Ichi and whatnot today?
1: Yeah, I mean, these, these are. Sega had a chance to bring over games. That could have probably started something uh the niche market for these type of games back in the 90s as opposed to something that's started by atlas and nippon ichi uh you know in the mid to late 2000s which is almost the norm now and people see these like all over the place and they're like being commercially accepted and brought over practically by anyone that's willing to uh pick them get pick them up we got um i mean like i said we got atlas we got nippon ichi um There's another one. Who's the guys that uh, brought over the three, uh, the big Nintendo uh, Wii games? X Games? I forget. Seed. That's... X. Yeah. Seed brought those games over. I mean, we got all these publishers now who are willing to pick up the slack from what Working Designs used to do, which is bring over the niche RPGs. And imagine now if Working Designs was still around, and probably still working with Sega, because Sega did continue to make RPGs. They just never came out west.
0: Yeah... And it's, it's, this is going to start for a few years, a period where Japanese RPGs are being developed by Sega but not being ported up until roughly about the midpoint of the PlayStation 2 era. And it gets weird for Sega for a few years. <clears throat> but it's it's interesting to me that, as you had noted, Stolar said, well, these aren't going to be popular, these aren't going to be anything. And fucking Final Fantasy VII destroyed everything expectation-wise.
1: <laughs>
0: I mean, this is a game that, by the end of that console cycle, had moved more than 5 million units, and as of this point is close to around 11 to 12 million units. It is... Basically, Square Enix's biggest success story at this point. It's one of the biggest franchises that Square had anything to do with developing, It's or franchise entries, I should say. And unfortunately, it also kind of caused Square to make a lot of bad decisions that ended up with them inevitably merging with Square Enix out of necessity, because I mean, you know, the Spirits Within didn't happen on its own. But for a while, it was it was a really big deal, and it was an amazing thing for JRPGs in general. Unfortunately, outside of the Final Fantasy titles, a lot of companies didn't really manage to keep up sales-wise. So in some respects, Stolar was correct. It's just that there were enough success stories there to... Keep the genre going into kind of a renaissance on the PlayStation, whereas the N sixty four didn't really see too many entries, and Sega I think started had Yeah, and Sega started pairing off a bit, and the games that they did release were not big successes by any means.
1: And uh, um, for in regards to Sega's like last few RPGs as a console maker, um. I would have to say it's pretty much like a. It's pretty sad to be honest, because they had some really great RPGs on the on the Dreamcast itself.
0: Yeah, and that actually brings us into the sixth console generation a bit, starting off with the one JRPG that they internally developed that made its way to the US. That was a big deal and financially viable and high quality, and that's Skies of Arcadia.
1: It's a beautiful game, and even to this day, it holds up wonderfully.
0: It is and it's to the to the point where even when it was apparent that the Dreamcast was on its way out, it was one of the very first games that Sega said okay, we're going to salvage this and they cleaned it up, put in extra content and brought it out again on the GameCube so Maybe it's just that Sega makes bad decisions. I don't know. But... I
1: definitely have to say it was a bad decision on their part. I mean, the game was originally planned to be released on both the PlayStation 2 and the GameCube, but for whatever reason, I guess there was an issue... That I, I don't know what the problem was, but they canceled the port for the PlayStation 2 and made it practically a GameCube exclusive, which, you know, at the same time, now that Mac- the Xbox is out... And, you know, Sega is literally splitting up in three, releasing games for all three systems, so you would think they would try and at least port the game to as many consoles as they can to get as big an audience as they could, but they stick to the the, lo- the, the least-selling console of that generation.
0: Yeah, and I feel like it's really interesting, too, because I never got the impression that Sega was particularly invested in trying to make games for the Xbox until the next generation, Like, you you didn't really see Sega's best and brightest appearing on the Xbox in any capacity, which, small wonder, the games were not selling in Japan, obviously. But it's interesting because it seemed as though they invested a lot of their effort into the PlayStation 2 because they knew the PlayStation 2 was the de facto winner. But they, they kept giving these things to Nintendo for whatever reason... And it just, it never struck me as particularly good business sense, and I think that probably hurt them as much as anything else, because Skies of Arcadia did have that opportunity, especially if they had ported it at the time that they did, to have still been a winner, because at that point, JRPGs were something that the market was hungry for, and wasn't really getting a lot of, and if they did, it was really weird shit. Like, I can't even remember the name of it, but there was this. I, I want to say it was Otogi Demon King or something like that. Otogi
1: for the Xbox, yeah.
0: Okage Shadow King. There we Okage,
1: go. Okage, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: that game was aesthetically interesting, but Jesus Christ, that was a piece of trash. <laughs> and there was that. There was Ephemeral Fantasia, which. You know, we should have known that Konami was a horrible fucking company years before when that game came out, because that game was a fucking hate crime. Oh, yeah. Jesus Christ. You want to talk about one of the worst JRPGs ever. That game used a Groundhog Day loop that was impossible to survive uh, without a fucking strategy guide or weeks of plotting out people's individual activity. It was just so terrible. Oh, my God. Yeah. And... and Final Fantasy X was it. For a while, Final Fantasy X was it. And Sega had that opportunity, again, to get that money, and they just they put it to the GameCube, which was the third-place entry in the, the console wars, collectively.
1: Well, on the PS2, we did finally get a U.S. release of Sakura Wars, so long, my love.
0: Yeah, at the very, 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 end very, of very, end of the system's life cycle, which I actually want to talk about a little later because it, 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 it has equivalent impact elsewhere. But outside of Skies of Arcadia, Sega doesn't really release any other JRPGs during this console cycle, like, at all. They no. released Shining Games, but they, they were all actual, they were all action RPGs that were not very good.
1: They did do the uh, Sega Ages remakes of Fantasy Star 1 and 2, but they never got ported to the U.S.
0: Nope. There was a plan to do that. I don't remember the name of the developer, but they're dead now, so it doesn't matter. I promise you, they've released one game, and you probably don't own it. There was a company that was going to port all three of the planned Sega Ages Fantasy Star remakes in one collection to the PlayStation 2, and that would have been awesome. It was announced right after Fantasy Star Generations 2 came out in Japan, and everybody was just chomping at the bit to get this. Like, I pre-ordered this with my, at the time, local EB games hoping against hope that this thing would come out, and instead, Sega of Japan canceled Fantasy Star 4 in the Sega Ages lineup, and then that developer quietly went out of business. The closest that we got was a rebirth of the fantasy star series which even then wasn't a traditional Japanese RPG we got fantasy star online and I love fantasy star online don't get me wrong but it's not fantasy star not
1: in the traditional sense
0: right exactly it it isn't that sort of experience and Sega just kind of outside of the Sakura Tyson games that they were releasing in Japan Sega just kind of quietly abandons the JRPG genre at this point for a few years, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because, again, on, th- on the PlayStation, the, the renaissance that we had seen of JRPGs for the PlayStation 2 had, had started to die off. You know, this was the time period where working designs actively ceases to exist as a company towards the end of the PlayStation 2 era.
1: Thanks in no part to Sony Sony of uh, America's uh, policy towards game publishing.
0: Yeah, that was a big part of it, and a bunch of other companies were screwed over at that point. But in general, we just start seeing a lot less JRPGs during this cycle. Atlas still developed games, although they kind of got into some shit with Sony, to the point where Atlas of Japan decided to give Sony the biggest middle finger possible, by releasing a Mega Ten game for the Xbox that never came to the U.S. and was never going to, but essentially doing so as a way of saying "fuck you, we're not going to take your bullshit," which I think was I think was a big part in how they eventually softened how they handled these sorts of things, because you know, from Software had no say in what H-Tech could do as far as porting games, and Working Designs quietly died off. But Atlas, at the time, you know, the Mega Ten franchise has never been a big hit here until Persona. But in Japan, it's probably the number three or number four JRPG franchise, pound for pound. So they have that kind of weight, at least in Japan, to say, hey, Sony, you remember how you didn't let us bring innocent sin over to the U.S. because of gay and Hitler? Fuck you. We're going to make games for the Xbox. It just as a scare tactic, and it, it kind of worked, because we haven't heard about those stories so much post the PlayStation 2 era. But it's it's for the PlayStation 2 in general, there's a lot less JRPGs coming out, and the JRPGs that are coming out are generally higher-budget productions. Outside of the ones that Working Designs had released, we're, we're starting to see the, I guess you want to say, technologically inferior games though I, I love me my sprite art coming out for the DS uh, the Game Boy Advance the Playstation Portable and we're, we're not really seeing them on the consoles anymore and the games that we are seeing on the Playstation 2 are fewer and further between there's still some success stories you know Xeno Saga was a big deal um, Final Fantasy X was a big deal Final Fantasy XII slightly less so but, by and large, it's the renaissance has kind of ended, and the only things that are releasing at this point are the ones that are likely to make shitloads of money.
1: It was also kind of a uh, transitional uh, phase going on for the way RPGs were... Tra- they were More people at that time were transitioning from like, traditional JRPGs to more of the action-oriented uh, RPGs.
0: That is true.
1: I mean, you had a whole bunch of you know these games that were being put out by. Uh, well, you had like the Boulder's Gate franchise, uh, and and the games just like that. You know, the action RPG ones like Summoner, Fable, Morrowind, all these, you know, third person over the shoulder, first person type of games. And people were starting to more go more towards those, and because they're more they were more accessible, something you could pick up and put down. As opposed to, like, you know, the RPGs that we're more traditionally familiar with.
0: Yeah, Japanese RPGs took a really long time to evolve, and honestly, they still haven't evolved to the point where they need to. But this is also the console generation where the Western RPG starts coming more to the forefront as well. Games like Diablo had flirted with console relevance, but it wasn't until the seventh console generation where we started seeing games like Morrowind, uh, Summoner, you know, other Western-developed games start appearing on these consoles, you know, The Bard's Tale, as another example, and starting to capture some of that marketplace from people who maybe wanted to play an RPG but didn't necessarily want to wait all of that time since the JRPGs were dwindling and didn't necessarily want to deal with the rigid restrictions the JRPGs utilized. So here is where we start seeing, at least in the U.S., the power balance kind of shift, and Western RPGs are starting to pick up steam. <clears throat> or excuse me, the um, the sixth console generation is where we start seeing that kind of shift a bit. But then in the seventh console generation is where everything kind of comes to a head. Sega releases one distinct JRPG of note themselves during this period, which is Valkyria Chronicles. A game that was considered to be a huge success story for Sega because they managed to get it to a point where it sold a million units through grassroots advertising. And, you know, word of mouth got that game to where it was. We also saw NIS bring out the what was at that point, and still kind of is to this day... The only sakura wars title at all for both the playstation 2 as the at the tail end of the sixth console generation and the wii as an introductory point to the seventh console generation and at that point basically it's the last game to have been brought over as no other companies really want to touch allowing these games on their consoles for some shit awful reason
1: I heard it was mostly because of poor sales. They were originally planning to do, like, a PSP port of the first four games, uh, like, a uh, for the PSP, like, all four games, and that got axed because um, it just didn't sell well on the PS2. And I think it was XSeed who was originally planning to uh, bring them over.
0: If it was poor sales, it wasn't because of anything to do with Nippon Ichi. Or, well, XSeed might have been considering it, but Nippon Ichi actively went back to Sony and said, hey, can we bring these games out on the PSP or whatever, since they exist, and Sony said, nah. And at that point, they said, well, shit, what the fuck are we going to do now? And they gave up. If XSeed was planning to do something with it, like, that is a bit beyond what I've heard, it's possible. But Nippon Ichi never really had a, a negative stigma against the franchise for sales. Sony just told them to go fuck themselves, and they didn't have a lot of other options at that point. But it's, it's outside of those two games, we don't really see anything JRPG-related coming out of Sega during the seventh console generation, to speak of, outside of, you know, re-releases of old games that are showing up on Sega Classics collections and whatnot. We see two more Valkyria Chronicles titles. One comes to the U.S. on the PlayStation Portable. The other does not. And we see a small handful of action RPG type games maybe come out of them uh, with a a fantasy star online sort of esque derivative game for the Vita um, yeah the PlayStation Portable but otherwise Sega just kind of stops making JRPGs that make it to the US for a while at this point like I want to say outside of Valkyria Chronicles 3 which we didn't even get like they kind of let that market dry up from their side of things and meanwhile in the 7th console generation you know, Square Enix continues to be Square Enix this is the point where we actively get Final Fantasy 13 after multiple delays and it makes its money but people actively become critical of it this is also the point where we just start seeing JRPGs kind of drying up in general, which is weird like, this, the very tail end of the 6th console generation saw Persona 3 and Persona 4 come out and make a certain amount of money for Atlus, and then we see nothing from them outside of Catherine for the entire 7th console generation, all the way up until the announcement of Persona 5. Like, literally nothing. We saw... A couple of side story type games released, like fighting games and dancing games, but we have mostly seen the games that they've released come out on the handhelds. They released nothing during, like nothing for the the consoles during that time period that was, you know, relevant to the Mega Ten franchise. It's just a lot of drying up of the JRPG market in general, with a couple of the big dogs consistently releasing something. But otherwise, it's it's we've just been seeing a lot less of them all the way until the tail end.
1: Um, it could be possible that even though Sega kept trying to attempt to release, you know, traditional JRPGs and strategy RPGs, that they may have caught wind of, like, you know, how the trend was going with, you know, JRPGs in America, at least. And has jumped the bandwagon ahead of time, because, I mean... Literally all we had the last two RPGs, Core Wars, and uh, what was that other game? I forget now. <laughs> Valkyria Chronicles. Val- yeah, Valkyrian Chronicles. Um, they released you know those three games, and then all of a sudden it's just like we don't see nothing from them ever again. From it, it, in fact, it's mostly now like the whole market of RPGs is is action adventure oriented, third person adventure, sandbox type RPGs. You know it, it's. That's pretty much all we're seeing right there, because people want you know RPGs that are more accessible, and it it's kind of it it's definitely hurt the market in terms of creativity.
0: Yeah, and it's that it was that way for a number of years, honestly. Like, and you can see it in, in basically any fandom. Um, Nintendo originally started porting over the Fire Emblem games during the Game Boy Advance era, and released a small handful of them to the Game Boy Advance, and then I think one to the GameCube and one to the Wii and just really showed a distinct lack of interest in doing anything with the genre. Square Enix starts diversifying at this point. They buy into IDOS and start working with IDOS more regularly as a publisher as it relates to games in the U.S.
1: Mm -hmm. Enix, the Enix side of course of Square Enix, uh, you know, tries to experiment with online games. Dragon Quest X never makes it to the U.S. despite being released for the PC, Wii, and Wii U.
0: Yeah, and a lot of the JRPGs that do come out during this time period are from lower-band companies. A lot of the more... I don't even necessarily want to say AAA because Sega hasn't really been a AAA publisher in a while, but a lot of the higher-band companies start actively shying away from them. Like, even Bandai Namco, known for the Tales series, starts kind of saying, you know what, maybe we shouldn't bring over all of these Tales games. They're not making us money. They're not a big focal point, and they start kind of focusing on weird ports and games based on licensed properties, instead of their own in-house stuff. The companies that are releasing these games are basically XC to Nippon Ichi for a while, and then eventually Idea Factory kind of expands out of Nipponichi and starts releasing their own games in the US exclusively, and these are all really niche products that aren't big sellers but they're doing okay for these companies so it's 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 we've all of a sudden got these companies that are just opening up their own branches in the u.s to do what working designs wasn't doing anymore because again you know nippon Ichi is a division of nippon Ichi japan uh idea factory obviously a division of idea factory and exceed is a division of marvelous and they all start porting their own games to the u.s marketplace and I, I don't want to leave out Access here either although their existence predominantly revolves around porting anything that Arc System Works makes let's be honest mm-hmm. and for a while outside of these like niche publishers the market kind of dries up for a bit until about two years ago Bandai Namco has kind of a revelation and they realize shit why don't we just start bringing out these games and see if people will pay money for them And all of a sudden, in rapid succession, we start seeing Sword Art Online games. We start seeing games based on something other than Naruto and Dragon Ball Z. They fucking brought out a Saint Seiya game, for Christ's sake. And they start just saying, well, we're just going to release every Tales game. Fuck it. Let's see what happens. Meanwhile, Sega buys Atlas, And suddenly, they've got one of the major JRPG developers in their pocket okay let's see what we can do with that and they just start kind of relying on Atlas a bit for that so they decide you know what let's re-release Valkyria Chronicles let's start making the games that the fan base wants and see what happens and they're already talking about re-releasing Valkyria Chronicles 3 in the US which they never did on top of them bringing out 7th Dragon 3 on the 3DS just this year and it's it's none of these games are big success stories in any case but it shows a sign to at least give that another shot so maybe they've got another opportunity to release something but it's it's just very weird to realize that during all of these periods where these games were at their peaks Sega never had a big seller to the point where when these things started winding down Sega said fuck it and just stopped making them
1: that's a shame too to be truthfully honest because despite the fact that, you know, some of the games weren't big sellers like Skies of Arcadia has potential that if they were to re-release that game right now, I gu- and on multiple platforms, I guarantee you that would probably finally hit a million sales. I believe the initial Dreamcast sales were somewhere just above 500,000.
0: Yeah, and it's, I feel like looking at these things though, it, it, you can start to see like a few basic patterns as to why these games never took off. Part of it obviously has to do with them being entirely on Sega consoles. And while the Genesis was competitive with the Super Nintendo, the the Dreamcast struggled to make 10 million units and ultimately didn't. Uh, the Saturn was a colossal failure in all possible respects in, outside of Japan, and even then it wasn't any great shakes. And the Master System was just not able to compete with the NES because nothing could have.
1: A little too late to the party as well. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's, it's, you have all these different consoles that were just always never best in show. Even the Genesis was competitive for a couple of years, but they still ended up losing. And it's important to note that, you know, second place may just still be the first loser, but you can still make some money from that. And Sega was never in a position to even try in a lot of cases because the Master System was just kind of a DOA console in a lot of respects. The Dreamcast was severely screwed right from Jump, and everybody kind of knew it.
1: Yeah, the moment they announced the PS2, it was just game over. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and it's... You can't really expect any kind of great success stories from Fantasy Star. You can't really expect any kind of great success stories from the Dreamcast release of Skies of Arcadia. But it's, it's clear that up until the point where Sega became their own private developer and started releasing games on the PlayStation 2, the Xbox, the GameCube that they were never in a position where they could have drawn Final Fantasy VII money because they were never in a position where they had the installed user base to try and do that. But I feel like it's also kind of worth noting that as we've discussed a couple of times, Sega was just really bad at making decisions just in general.
1: Marketing, I mean, for the Genesis era, I mean, they did a decent job marketing, but they marketed towards a specific audience. Like Like I said, like... The RPGs are pretty much a little bit more difficult to market when you're pretty much sitting here trying to make the the Genesis or Mega Drive out to be like this edgy, hardcore system that's just too cool for people who want to sit there and play the Nintendo. I mean, how do you market, like, the Shining Force series, a game that literally is rather slow and takes time to grind, as well as well as the Phantasy Star games, and then you, you, you want to sit there and you want to try and convince these people to somehow and buy... A Sega CD to play these other amazing games that are on there RPGs, and then all of a sudden you got that colossal failure of uh, the Saturn. I mean, pretty much every generation has a good story as to why RPGs just don't, from Sega, just don't take off. For, like I said like the it's mostly marketing and I guess at the same time the aesthetics of the games just seems a little too complicated whereas you look at Fantasy Star like you, you you look at like the names of these spells and the items and stuff like that and it, it does not seem familiar to somebody who's traditionally played you know Dragon Warrior and Final Fantasy where you know the spells are like got simple names like hurt heal more or you know fire. Uh, as opposed to something like Fira, or Giga, or um, Watt, <laughs> or a Monomate, for that matter.
0: Yeah, it's there, there's a certain amount of aesthetic complaints that you could make about the games. I would also probably say, in a lot of respects, that it kind of comes down to overall marketing, because, I mean, even if Nintendo was not big into RPGs of any capacity, when they decided they wanted to make their own JRPG, in the U.S. marketplace, you knew about it because for months there were advertisements that said, point blank, this game stinks, and talked about, like, what, what else Earthbound and just how great an experience it was. And even if you didn't buy Earthbound, you knew what Earthbound was because they were buying full-page advertisements fucking everywhere and showing that game like it was the second coming of Christ to get you interested in buying it.
1: Whereas, and to this day, I still remember one of the weirdest advertisements for it. It was a scratch-off that had a specific thing for you to smell. That is some weird but extremely effective marketing.
0: Right, and by Sega's comparison, you know, if you were not a Sega fan, you didn't know shit about Fatal Labyrinth or Fantasy Ph- uh, Star 3 or the... Game Gear versions of the Shining Force games or whatever, like these were not games that Sega put a shitload of time and effort into marketing in any capacity you definitely didn't see anything on TV about any of their JRPGs literally ever and that actually became a thing that after Final Fantasy 7, we started seeing on TV constantly Final Fantasy 8, granted was kind of marketed as an action game which, fuck you, but it had huge television marketing that was a big fucking deal and Sega never did that with any of their JRPGs, they never tried to sell you on Shining the Holy Ark or Shining Force 3 on television they didn't try to sell very much of anything on television during the Saturn era, but especially not the JRPGs it's, these games have always been kind of like, third tier in a lot of respects, and like Sega just kind of expected, well We'll port these games, which are almost certainly way harder for us to translate than a Sonic the Hedgehog or whatever. And we'll see if people buy them. When you would think, with the amount of money and time that would be invested into translating these games, the smartest thing would have done to have been would have been to market the hell out of them.
1: Yeah, and the marketing part of it just just wasn't there. I mean, if you look at the '90s, I mean, Sega did everything they could to just. Pretty much, they they pretty much made their ads to attack Nintendo directly. It wasn't so much about the games; it was just like thirty second video, small clips of the game. You never saw a single RPG in any one of those clips or montages or commercials, because just Sega just wanted to be seen a certain way. And these games, like the RPGs, like Fantasy Star Four, being their biggest one that they've ever developed for the uh, the console um cost a lot of money when it came out as well. It just didn't seem like they had any priority uh in terms of wanting to get people to latch on to this game of theirs that took them so long to develop and took them even just as long to port it to uh, to translate it and bring it to the US.
0: Yeah, and it it's also really interesting too because Sega's kind of sort of picking up the idea of, hey, let's re-release Valkyria Chronicles. Hey, let's re-release Valkyria Chronicles 3. Hey, let's port Seventh Dragon. And they're kind of at a point now where they don't need to do any of that. Because they've got Atlas on board. And Atlas can kind of just be their RPG wing in a lot of respects. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting that we're kind of seeing Sega come back around on these concepts now. When they just don't really need to because there's not a particularly compelling reason for them to do it. Like, there's not there's not a good reason for them to say, well, you know, let's try to do this, or let's try to do that, and let's try to make, you know, this game popular, and let's try to make that game popular, and whatever. Because there's just no real onus on them to try and make something that, in a lot of respects, is in a competing marketplace for attention with the games that they have that atlas is making so i kind of wonder if maybe that's just not going to be a thing that we're even going to see out of them at this point like maybe maybe they're just going to try and release the old games that they've released and just call it a day but it's interesting that after years and years of just kind of not doing anything with the genre, that we're suddenly starting to see kind of an uptick in their recognizable behavior on it, when we haven't seen anything come out of them since, again, Valkyria Chronicles 2, for the most part. I mean, like, maybe it's possible that they can try and release another top-shelf game, or that they can try to release a game that is instantly recognizable as being the 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 big hot thing i don't think it's going to happen but it's certainly possible but it's just kind of interesting that we're at this point where sega's giving it another kick at the can metaphorically speaking when jrpgs were were kind of a niche product for a number of years
1: yeah um niche In terms of RPGs just being a niche, I mean, it looks like it just went back to that uh, category. I mean, we have all those Atlas and Ipanichi games, the X-Seed games. I mean, it's not so much like, you know, Square Enix is really doing much in this day and age. It seems like they've even veered completely off course from even making what you could even consider a traditional RPG. I mean, we have so many different types of games. I mean, look at some of the games that we've been playing lately. I mean, most of them are Niche-based anime RPGs, um, some of which I think like those idle uh, RPGs that you've been playing on your stream lately—they uh, were very interesting—and they're more traditional to RPGs. There's the Atelier series, which is being brought over by uh, Um Sega just—I at the—and they have, like you said, they have Atlas at their side. So if anything, they should really concentrate on just you know maybe getting Atlas to you know be their workhorse for the RPG front. Um, but we are still seeing a complete change in Sega's attitude. I mean, they're they're making the effort to try and win back their fans, as we've been seeing with all these polls they've been making, asking like their fans, like, okay, what is it you uh, you missed? What is it you want us to concentrate on? They're showing you know a little bit of this effort with you know the new Sonic games that they're trying to put out. So. And on top of that, if you look at, like, uh, their catalogs that they've been re-releasing constantly, they have the entire Fantasy Star and Shining Force franchise available on Xbox Live Arcade, on PlayStation Network, on Steam, on GOG. Um, so it's possible that, you know, if these games do sell enough and they, they pay attention to the numbers, they might, because they just built up an audience because now they have all these games that, you know, were only regulated to one freaking console per console generation. And now they have a much bigger, broader audience. And I'm hearing, seeing more people talking about these games now than I did, you know, years ago. So it's de- definitely possible that Sega may, you know, jump back into the JRPG uh, genre, uh, whether it's with Atlas or by themselves. So it's, it's going to be very interesting.
0: Yeah, and I don't know. It's. It seems like they maybe have a chance to try to do that again. Maybe like give it another shot in so far as being successful in this particular domain is concerned. I feel like it's interesting that they would even make the attempt, but it's just kind of amusing to me that we're at a point where Sega now more than anybody could actively make that effort to try and become that... JRPG publisher that they seemed to want to be for years, and now they're kind of at a point where they don't even need to. And the only thing that comes to my mind is, I kind of wonder just how long they can go without screwing it up, in some Mm -hmm. capacity or another. But, like, looking back on it, 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 it's it's kind of apparent that it, it mostly comes down to, Sega is just not very good at making decisions, and marketing their games, and keeping their allies close and just anything really at all so it's it's probably not as confounding as you would think when you actually look at it all in one big scope it's just you know hopefully sega doesn't blow themselves up in the next year or so and actually does what needs to be done here we'll see
1: yeah i mean let's put it this way at this point i'm holding out for a skies over Arcadia hd edition release on steam Sega, if you're listening, that would be the smartest move you can do right now.
0: Yeah, and I think we've probably about wrapped it up as far as where we can go with this particular topic. But I think we've we've kind of pinned it down here, and hopefully it won't stay that way forever. But I just want to say thank you very much, Mr. Hubs, for coming in for a podcast this time around. I appreciate thank,
1: it. Thank you very much for inviting me. I had a lot of fun.
0: Well, not a problem. You are welcome back anytime. But On that note, join us next week when our topic will be, why are there all of these bees in my teeth? On behalf of Robert Hubbs, this is Mark B. saying thank you very much for listening and stay safe out there, junkers.